Welcome to the David Gogo Soul Bender Podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections of life on the road. Hey, hey, top of the morning or whatever time slice of the day it is to you. Thanks for propping up the Soulbender podcast with your shekels at paypal.me slash guitar. And do you have a question for us? Perhaps we have an answer for you. Send that question to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com. We'll peruse it. This time around, it's all about cats and rats and elephants, but not unicorns, because there was some sort of problem with the online reservation system, and they got left behind. David is camped out with the co-founder and former front guy of the artists formerly known as the Irish Rovers. Now the Rovers. I'm cracking a Guinness in his honor, and here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Soul Bender Podcast. I'm David Gogo, and today, is this is really fun. I'm uh, sitting down in his home, in his art studio with Mr. Will Miller. How are you, sir? Well, as they say in Hollywood, top of the morning to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so just, well, I wanted to start at the beginning. So you were born in Ireland? Born in the county Antrim in the north of Ireland, in the same town as the famous Liam Neeson. Oh, really? Palomina. Okay. And... And I'm, I'm just looking at your, your amazing paintings here, and a lot of them are, are just from memories of your youth. Exactly. They, they take me back to my childhood. Luckily, I grew up in the country where big plow horses were on the go, and men were making moonshine in the hills, and there was lots of great pubs. My first gig as an Irish rover at 10 years old was our next-door neighbor's pub, and my father would be in there drinking, playing the button key to Corey, and... And my mother would say, well, go and get that old drunken scut out of that pub. <laughs> so I go in and say to Dad, Dad, the woman says you have to come home. He says, give us a song, son, before you go. So I remember standing there at 10 years old with my dad playing the button key accordion and me singing the wild colonial boy. Wow. And then I'd get, the, lo- the local drinkers would give me a shilling or give me a thruppenny bit or half a crown and so I said geez there's money in this gig <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's probably the way the Irish Rover started in those pub days way back then yeah I was going to ask if your parents played music so your, at least your, your dad did my dad was a button key accordion player and he he taught bands all over Northern Ireland marching bands with button key accordions he called it melodians oh okay and my mother in her own way was a stage mother and I guess I got my start by a local talent show in Balamina. And my sister was a, a girl singer. She was like a little Shirley Temple. She sang all the good, she had lollipop and all that. I'm hoarse today, as usual. And um, so she said, why didn't you and your sister Sandra enter into the talent show this year? I said, there's no way, I'm not doing it. He says, come on. So we learned there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza. And we went on and did it. And we won. Well, up until then, I was terrified of the stage. But the minute I got that audience giving me an applause, and David, you know the feeling. Mm -hmm. You get that rush that not very many careers give you. Right. And all of a sudden, I was hooked. So from then on, my sister and me became the Miller kids. 
and we played in every local church hall and every concert we could find. And then, of course, when we emigrated to Canada, <clears throat> that's when I first became a Calypso singer. I was always entertaining. I was a born entertainer, I think. And um, then when my brother and I got singing together, and the Irish Rovers were born in Toronto. Okay. Jimmy Ferguson was from Belfast, working in a Scotch tape factory. <laughs> my brother was a 16-year-old at high school. My cousin Joe had just come out from making boots with Clark's shoe factory. And we all sat around and we started singing because the Clancy brothers had been making a big name for themselves in the States. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's do something like that. Because we knew the songs. We knew the Wild Rover. And we, we knew the Black Velvet Band. And we knew a few. We sang. And everywhere we went, the people loved it. So I piled the boys into an old car that I had, an old three-point liter Jaguar, headed down the coast of California. My dreams of Mecca were to get playing in one of the main folk clubs, which was the Hungry Eye or the Purple Onion in San Francisco. We got an audition at the Purple Onion. I won't go into the long story of how we got the audition, but our car broke down. I'll tell you a little bit. On the way down the coast of California, the Jaguar broke down outside an Italian restaurant called Danucci's Italian Dinners. So I said, how are we going to fix this bloody car? So I hitchhiked into Santa Rosa because nobody around there knew anything about English cars. Meanwhile, the boys went into Danucci's Italian Dinners to buy cigarettes. When I got back at 11 o'clock at night with a mechanic who might fix the car, <laughs> he, the pub was lit up, all kinds of local farmers were in there, and the boys were singing, and they had a bucket on the billiard table full of dollar bills. Wow. So they had, here's, the, here's the catch of fate that always happened in my life. Touch wood, thank God. Danucci's Italian dinners was bought the month before by two exiles from Ireland. Two guys had just come out and bought the pub. And when they found out that an Irish singing group had arrived on their doorstep, they said, holy Jesus, get up there, boys, and give us a couple of songs. So we stayed with them. They fed us for about two weeks wow. at Danucci's Italian Tears. And we played every night, made a few bucks, because we had no money. And finally, uh, an agent came in who knew the Purple Onion. He said, oh, I'll get you guys in the Purple Onion if you'll sign on the dotted uh, line, okay. which we did. They got us in there, and we they booked us for a week around New Year's. They, they kept us for six months. We sold more booze at the Purple Onion than the Smothers Brothers or Phyllis Diller or any of those folky-type people. So... That was the beginning of the Rovers in California. Wow. W w did you ever play at a club called the Ash Grove? Or was that around? Yes, yes. Is it Los Angeles? We did, and we played the Troubadour Club. Oh, the in, Troubadour, yeah. That's where we played in L.A. But the Ash Grove, I know. I'll tell you, one of our main clubs in L.A. was at Seal Beach, and it was called the Golden Bear. And who opened the show there for us? 
Jose Feliciano. No kidding. And the following week, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Wow. They were all just starting. Wow. So did you guys stay in California for a while? or did We you... did. I, I married a California girl. I bought a little house in the Redwoods at Sebastopol outside Santa Rosa. My brother married a California girl and bought a house. Uh, I bought my first little Redwood house in Sebastopol for $11,000 wow. on one acres of apple trees. I mean, <laughs> unheard of. Yeah. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Because we were making pretty good money. We were flying, not flying, we were driving every winter to Aspen, Colorado, where we played the ski towns. Okay. And we were very popular playing to the ski, the après ski crowd. That seems, I guess, that, but this, that, of the time, I mean, folk was, was really big. And you folk was the big yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was on the road at that time. We, we ran, in Calgary, before we left, we ran... A, we, we played every night at a club called The Depression. And every Sunday night we had hoot nannies, and people could come, put their name on the list, and we'd bring them up. And one day, a young girl with a kilt on and a ukulele, and she sang the Thloop John B. and a With I Wath, and her name was Joni Anderson. And who would ever have dreamed that Joni Anderson would have become Joni Mitchell? Because right. that's what happened. She married Chuck Mitchell. Right. But we we used to see this girl coming to sing the sloop to him. He said, oh, shit, is that bird coming in to sing again tonight? <laughs> Who would have dreamed? Wait, was she good then? Well, she was good looking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you guys end up being any part of the, the Greenwich Village scene in New York? We did. We played at the Bitter End Club okay. in Greenwich Village quite a long time, with Janice Ian, a oh, young yeah. folk singer, yeah. and Ian and Sylvia. Okay. And uh, who else came in? Everybody came in in those days. The guy, what do you call Jim that, that ran the Loving Spoonful? Um, oh, John Sebastian. John Sebastian was singing solo then. Right. And we did a pilot show with John Denver and Peter, Paul, and Mary and Ian and Sylvia at the at the Cellar Door Club in Washington. Nice. It was going to be a TV show. It never happened, but we had a great time. And uh, those were high days for young folk singers. We didn't really know about the whole scene. We played on the Haight-Ashbury during the flower year at the Blarney Stone Pub on Haight Street, right near the corner of Haight and Ashbury. Wow. When everybody's handing out LSD and flour and love, and all the boys wanted it was a shot of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the whole folk scene back then, especially I think in Greenwich Village, it seemed that there was, they called it folk, but that's a large umbrella. I mean, you might get John Lee Hooker one night, you might get the Clancy Brothers the next night, you might get Dave Van Ronk. Like it really, that's a big umbrella for, for blues and folk. Absolutely. And, it was, and, and poetry would come into that and, and, and eventually comedy, right? It was a wonderful time because, yeah, Lenny Bruce was playing. When we played the Purple Onion, he was getting arrested up around the corner on North Beach because okay. the Purple Onion is on North Beach. Carl Dodo was introducing the topless dancing. Yeah. And who else was there? The Chad Mitchell Trio was doing that before, before John Denver joined, joined them. <clears throat> so um, those were really high times, but you're right. Everybody played. 
we played a lot with Josh White Jr. Oh, yes. And uh, there were a lot of blues singers in those days. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when did you guys start recording? And when you started recording, was it still mostly traditional music, or did you start writing at that point? Like, that Ice House gig that we had <clears throat> at the Ice House in Pasadena, a producer from Decca Records was in there one night with his old Irish mother and heard us and said, well, we might be interested in doing a St. Patrick's Day album. You guys would be interested? We said, would we? Okay. <laughs> yes. And so we, Bud Dan, God rest his soul, wonderful producer, Bud Dan produced 49 albums for Pete Fountain. He produced the albums for Ricky Nelson. Wow. But he took us on, and we were doing an Irish pub album live at the Ice House. And Steve Martin was opening the show for us with his five-string banjo Amazing. and his silly magic tricks. <laughs> and um, we did it live, and we got a whole big drunken crowd of Irishmen in there. It was a great album. But we went to do a second album then for Decca, and he said, have you got any... Have you got anything else that might be a little commercial that's not an Irish song? I said, well, I do this kid's song written by Shel Silverstein called The Unicorn. Everybody likes it. Let's put it on. It so happened the day we did The Unicorn in the studio, Glenn Campbell was in the studio that morning doing an album with Bur with, <clears throat> with Lives. And... And our producer, Bud, knew him and asked him if he'd come and do a, a little session with us on the unicorn. And so Glenn Campbell came and he, he said, give us an intro. So he went, da-da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-dum, da-dum, dum-dum, the introduction. We found out later it was exactly the same intro as Burl Live's Little Bitty Tear. If you listen to Little Bitty Tear, there's a bit of trivia for you. Hilarious. And uh, so that was... That was the beginning because when it was released, we were heading for the ski fields of Aspen again. We were driving across Colorado through the mountains at night. I was the only driver. The boys were all passed out in the back. And on the radio from Albuquerque, New Mexico, 500,000 hertz, came the unicorn song. I stopped the car in the middle of the Colorado highway in the dark of the night with the stars out, turned up the radio and say, get up, listen to this, boys. We're on the radio. Just then, this is a true story, just then a highway patrol, Smokey the Bear, came up behind us with a cowboy hat and got out of the car and he came up and said, what the hell are you guys doing? We said, just a minute, that's us on the radio. So he stood there listening wow. to the song and then he opened the trunk of his police car to shoot us his D28 Martin. That no. Pack. Yes. So he's a picker. He was a country picker. And away we went happily. But by the time we got to, um, what was it called? The Abbey Cellar in Aspen, we were being played in about two dozen radio stations across America. It was unbelievable. And when we got to Detroit, the song was so big in Detroit that we were on WJR early morning radio, which everybody listened to. And uh, then we were on Arthur Godfrey. So that song 
opened a lot of doors, I got to admit. And it became a number one hit in Canada. And I only got to about in the top 10 in America, but you know what? It opened up concert stages for us everywhere. So we went from the full clubs to Carnegie Hall. Wow. That, that was basically the way it went. Wow. It was a good life. You know, a few years back, I was uh, stopped into a recording studio in Nanaimo. I had to drop something off for a friend of mine, and your brother was in the studio. All the time. They live yeah. there now. So, you know, we had, we had a little chat and stuff. Well, <clears throat> I took off, and I went to the second-hand record store, and the first thing I found was a forty-five. Of the unicorn on the potato label. That's right. That was our own label. So you figured the Beatles have apple? Yeah, we had potato. That was a joke. <laughs> apple of the earth. Right? Get it? But I, uh, what, what, uh, the story I heard was that someone said to you, you know, this, you, you got to write your own song to put on the flip side. So if the unicorn sells, you'll still get... Same royalties. Same royalties. royalties. Yeah. And that was Whiskey on a Sunday, was it? No, it was Black Velvet Band. Okay. And it wasn't written by us. It was just adapted. I rewrote the first... The, excuse me. I rewrote the verses. And um, and so, you're right. That's, that's what all those gold records are hanging on the wall right now. Most of them are from the unicorn. Yeah. And it was a magic time. It really was. So how long between the, the song taking off for you and... You know, you got these great opportunities now. How long before that and, and your television show? Yeah, it was about five years, I'd say. We finally came to Vancouver to play, and Ken Gibson, the producer of a Mike Solon show that was on CBC at that time, <clears throat> came to us and said, we're changing our presenter, and we wondered if you'd like to come on as guests. Well, Jimmy was a little hammered. We'd been in a pub all afternoon. And so was Joe. We went on the talk show. Well, the first thing, Jimmy started eating your man's tie. While he's talking to me, Jimmy's got the man's tie in his mouth. It was the most irreverent interview. And, of course, the audience loved it. And we were given, we were given six weeks, which expanded into six years yeah. of national television. So, yeah. We, uh, you know what? Uh, I look back on it all now, and my brother and I ended up in a battle royal at the end of Irish Rovers, which is sad because we were comrades all the way. Typical of music bands. Thank God we've we've all made up, and we're. I'm an older man now, and um, my brother and me have reunited in a way. He's been touring the Irish Rovers all these years, yeah, and that's why you always see him in the Nimo making another CD. I don't know why they make so many CDs. Who's buying them anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, I guess he sells them in concert. Yeah, I think that's the main thing, yeah. You come here running Bones of the buffalo You're crossing the border Where the devil won't go Where the devil won't go then you get to the fall line It all starts to rumble It's a roll and a tumble Soft and low Soft and low
Feel the fire burn Feel the fire burn You come here running With bones of the buffalo You're crossing the border Where the devil won't go Where the devil won't go Where the Devil Won't Go is from David Gogo's 2009 album, Different Views. I'll tell you one place the devil won't go, the Giant's Causeway in Will Miller's birthplace of County Antrim on the north coast of Northern Ireland because it's like walking on Lego bricks on that thing. That was our late friend Gabby's favorite Gogo song, which means it's a pretty good one. Speaking of Will Miller, here's more go-go chat with Will Miller. Um, you know, that, that television show is, is, you know, especially for, well, for, for most Canadians. But like when I was a little kid, like that's what you watched on Sunday There was, was nothing Sunday else night. to watch, yeah. Dave. <laughs> we were one game in town that was Disneyland first. We had the kids. And then we did that little bit on there every year of uh, every, every show of Leprechauns. Oh. So... The fact that I'm sounding a little hoarse, I assure you, I'm really a fit person. I always loved, I walked my dogs up the mountain five days a week. But about two and a half years ago, to my horror, the doctor with a sore throat, doctor told me I had throat cancer, which absolutely knocked the legs from out of me. Always a big fear. So I had to go to the cancer clinic, and I... um, Seven weeks of radiation. I lost 25 pounds. I lost my tonsils. I, I'm hoarse now a lot of the time. Yeah. And, um, but you know what? I'm fit. And they, after the radiation, they told me it was pretty well all clear. Yeah. And uh, a little bit has come back. But you know what? I think the power of the mind can win over a lot of things. Now I'm eating turmeric and... <laughs> All kinds of health food shite, and and I've given up drink pretty well. I don't eat sugar anymore, and I love my life as an artist, Dave. I was just going to say that that being a painter probably is a very kind of zen, kind of a soothing thing oh, to heal with. Thank God for it. And you're right. I I go there, and I don't let any angst bother my mind. I think the more you worry about things, the more it's going to get you. So. At my age, I am 84 years old, even though I only look 34. <laughs> and uh, you never, ever think you're going to get to that age. Yeah. So remember, all you young folks, have fun. Enjoy music, because fun is all there really is in the end. Enjoy your friends. Don't carry a lot of hatreds around with you. Because I went through an era with my brother, with with the loss of the Irish Rovers, 
bad vibes in my in my mind. Now, like you say, with my painting, I meditate on what I'm doing, and I've I've really got a whole new outlook in life that I don't let things bother me half as much anymore. And I, I try and find fun, like the cartoon you sent me the other day of Helen Keller <laughs> with an ugly little pug dog and this, this look underneath it it says Helen Keller with her favorite puppy or her favorite kitten uh, mittens. mittens. <laughs> that was the best laugh I had in a long time. Um, I want to go back to um, the TV show and that. You know, what a character Jimmy seemed to be. I mean, I, I was just a kid, but I remember um, it was near Christmas one time and my mother had taken my sisters and I to the mall and uh, to get our picture taken with Santa Claus. And then I saw this suit. It was a, <laughs> a powder blue polyester suit. <laughs> and I insisted to my mom that I had to get it because Jimmy Ferguson had a suit like that, oh, a powder blue polyester oh suit. Oh, my God. And I just thought that would be the coolest thing. And there it is. There's a picture of me all stiff looking in this brand new oh, suit with I Santa Claus as a little kid because I thought, well, I'm going to look like Jimmy. You know, Jimmy was the funniest natural comedian. He was like a John Candy or, uh, or Jonathan Winters. He had, those ex- yes. he had those facial expressions and he had a way of, of having humor in things. Yet, with a few drinks in him, God rest his soul now, he could turn pretty dark. Mm. That's typical of a comedian. I've known a lot of them. And there's a yin and yang in the world of comedy. Because yep. one minute they can be hilarious, the next minute they can be ready to fight the house. Yep. Start a row in an empty house, as my mother used to say. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, speaking of drinking, after the TV show, you guys uh, got into the bar, the pub business. We did. What else could we do? We made some money, and our Jewish manager said, well, we've got some money, boys. What would you like to do? And in unison, we said, we want to open a pub, of course. And so we did. We opened the first one up in uh, Calgary, our old stomping grounds. And that became the most popular pub in Calgary, the Unicorn down on 8th Avenue. And then there was one in Toronto, the big one at Expo 86. Yeah, I remember that one. And um, we had a couple of floppers too. But in the end, I bailed out from them. When the Rovers broke up, I, I let go of all my shares very timely because there's a, a lifespan of pubs as well. Yes. They change. And uh, as the old song says, you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Just before those pubs, uh, you know, the television show, you, you know, you got some more hit records. You go, wasn't that a party? And all yeah, there wasn't that a party. It was an amazing thing, actually. And it came out of the blue. You guys must have been rock stars then. My Jesus, we were like for about a month. <laughs> they dropped the Irish under the name. Right. And became the Rovers singing. But high school kids all over the country, they ran a big debutante dance and they called it Wasn't At The Party. Uh. <laughs> and so... Young kids knew the song. Yeah. Tom Paxton, our friend, wrote it, and uh, we had that rocking saxophone. Yeah. But luckily, Jack Richardson produced that album. I was going to ask who did it, yeah. Jack did, and he had done, what, Poco and Backman Turner. Yeah. And uh, he was a great producer. Big time, big time. And we had great times with Jack. He's a fun guy. Another lost, another man gone to the big choir. So that's what I say. You got to, you got to enjoy. I have a, Bud Dan had a wonderful sonnet that he wrote that I've always carried with me. He said, 
Music is a strange and useless thing. It doesn't offer shelter from the storm. It doesn't really ease the sting of living or nourish us or keep us warm. Yet men expend their lives learning how to juggle bits of noise and by their swift illusions to confound the heart with fleeting and evasive joys. Joy, <laughs> joys. And I am full of quaking gratitude that this eternal pastime still exists, that in a world of dull computer mood, a piper still can whistle in the mist. His notes are pebbles dropping into time. How sweetly mad it is and how sublime. Great. That's that's fantastic. And by the way, <clears throat> Will's playing this beautiful um, penny whistle made out of brass. Brass flute. And and that's from World War One, was it? Yes. I was doing a documentary about the children caught in the crossfires of Belfast, and I was interviewing an old lady who was running a halfway house for Protestant and Catholic children. And on her mantelpiece in a kind of little hollowed place was this old brass tin whistle. And I said, oh, can I have a look at that whistle? She said, yeah. So I took it down and I played. She told me that her brother had carried this tin whistle into the Battle of the Somme in 1916, and he lost his life. But this whistle was returned with some of his belongings. And she took it off and gave it to me. Wow. So I've treasured this, and that's why I play military songs sometimes. The Minstrel Boy. I love that uh, when you bend the note like that. Yeah, that's, that's, cool. part, that's part of whistling. And uh, my God, there are some old guys in Ireland I go in a pub. I was in a pub one night and I had the tin whistle in my hip pocket like I always have. And this old guy came up with a pint in his hand, and he says to me, he was about 85 old, like me. <laughs> he came up and he says, you play that thing, son. And I said, yeah, I'll play it a little bit. He said, well, give us a blow. So I played a little bit. I said to him, do you play one yourself? Well, with this devilish grin, he opened up his coat and lined up in his inside pocket was about six tin whistles. And he took one out with the old arthritic fingers Holy Jesus, he played a reel like would blow you away. Wow. I said, give me my whistle. <laughs> no, he was great. That's fantastic. Ireland, there's so many great musicians over there. Yeah, you know, I've never been. I, I, don't, I can't believe oh, it. Oh, they'll love you over <coughs> there, David. you got to go. I've, I've been to Europe countless times, but and my mother's half Irish, so i, I got to get over there sometime. They love your kind of music over there, too. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it goes on. Yeah. As you know. Yeah, we were talking about Rory Gallagher earlier. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring up, so besides music, besides painting, is you've written a, a few books. I have. I, my first book was called Children of the Unicorn, published by McClellan Stewart in Toronto, and did very well. Sold out, the whole run was 15,000 or something. It wasn't exactly a bestseller, but it sold. And then a few years later, uh, I did a whimsy book called Messing About in Boats. Yes. Because I'm a rotten sailor and I love sailing. <laughs> I have sunk and burned and grounded 
more bloody boats. Nobody takes me sailing anymore. Because I'm, I, I, my opening paragraph in that book says, King Neptune took a dislike to me when I was just a minnow. For many a time, I have felt his pointy trident prodding me up the arse. <laughs> <laughs> in any of your, your books, you talk about hanging out with Derek Sanderson? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to think in there for a minute while you're talking about it. I met Derek Sanderson down at the Hilton in Waikiki Beach. All right. And I went over and talked to him, and we, we struck it up, and we went out for dinner that night. He picked up the phone, and he phoned two top models in New York and flew them out the next morning first class. <laughs> Little wonder he ended up with no money. That's right. And he had huge entourage following around. I went with him. And in my bravado, I remember it was about 17 people. Half of them were beautiful girls at Nick's Fish House in Waikiki. And at the end of the meal, I threw my credit card out because I thought I was the blast of the big spenders. Well, he came up later and put his arm around me. He says, I thank you, man, for that. He says, because everybody else is just a leech. But you went and paid your way. And so I was with him for a couple of days at the Waikiki Beach, and there was a couple of Montreal, I wish I could remember their names. I wasn't a real hockey fan in those days, but later on, I read about poor old Derek's yeah. downfall from yeah. the, was it the Boston Club he played yeah, for? Yeah, Boston Bruins, yeah. And then his knees gave out, apparently. Yeah. And But you know what? He was larger than life at the time, good-looking boy. Yeah. The girls loved him. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that was his downfall, too. He was like Georgie Best yeah. in, in Belfast. Could not handle the money and the drink and the women. Yeah. And now there's an airport named after him. Belfast Airport is called the George Best Airport. No kidding. Um, well, he was he was he was huge. He was a superstar. Yeah. Um, well, I thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, if people are interested in your paintings or anything else, is there a website they can go to? In order? Yes, Gallery Eight on Salt Spring Island have all my works up, and they hang they hang my paintings. And every March 17th, if anybody's around, it's all free. I have about 30 new paintings on show. We serve Guinness, we play a few tunes, and it's a great afternoon celebrating St. Patrick's Day. And forgive me for my hoarse voice today because I've been singing and talking with David Gogo for the last three hours. <laughs> so I'm hoarse. That's right. But other than that, I feel great. I do. I yeah. feel I feel fit. I walk my dogs every day now up the mountain. And I think that's the cure for all that ails you. Get out. Get off the couch. Take your dogs for a walk or your wife or yourself. And uh, just keep moving. Yeah, you got to keep on moving. You got to keep on moving. Well, thank you, Will Miller. I sure appreciate it. David, I love your stuff and I love talking to you. And hopefully, we have a few more parties lined up. I hope so. And we'll have good fun. Already. Thank you. Well, now, wasn't that a party? The Soul Bender podcast is made possible by your much appreciated support at paypal.me slash go go guitar. So, thank you very much. Send any questions to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com, and we look forward to your fine company on the next episode. I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. It's been a slice, and we love you. This has been the David Gogo Soulbender Podcast.
stay up to date, follow David on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, and X. Thanks for listening. Until next time.